0: Welcome to the first podcast of the Nature Institute, a research and educational organization for holistic and qualitative science based in Ghent, New York. The following talk is entitled Cultivating the Roots of Earth Stewardship and is about the role of direct experience in educating children. It was given by the Institute's director, Craig Holdridge, on March 24, 2018 at the Winkler Center for Adult Education in Garden City, New York.
1: This morning, the topic is around education and um, the question of earth stewardship and thinking of children. Of course, when we think of children, we have to think of ourselves because we, of course, are major influences on children as adults. And this question of sustainability has been around for a long time and a long time meaning a few decades where the word kind of came into common use and it's been of course misused as well and i would nonetheless like to read a quotation um, from uh, donella meadows and her colleagues when they were writing um, in 2004 a 30-year update Um, of their book, The Limits of Growth, which was a very important book in the 1970s for the environmental movement. And they write, It is simplest to say that a sustainable society is one that can persist over generations. One that is far-seeing enough, flexible enough, and wise enough not to undermine its either its physical or its social systems of support. So a sustainable society, which of course we as human beings create with nature, one that is, and as human beings, we need to be far-seeing, flexible, and wise, right? Far-seeing, flexible and wise i thought that was actually very good there are many many different definitions of sustainability um, and all of them are you know somewhat one-sided but this is very good because it says we have to change we can't go on in the same way and it's also not just a matter of changing our technologies it's about changing certain core um, capacities so that we are more far-seeing looking being able to have a sense of the future even though the future is of course always something unknown and will bring surprises and flexible flexibility of mind to be able to adapt and respond creatively to new conditions and wise wisdom is you know something we all can have a feel for. It's not very easy to articulate what that is. But if you think of someone who you feel is wise, I had this feeling I had a wise grandfather, um, who, when he spoke, it felt like something bigger was speaking through him. And I knew him when he was 80 years old, as we had conversations. And that it wasn't just his intelligent mind-speaking, it was his whole being that had lived and experienced um, many things in his life, and he was able to speak out of that in a way that felt wise. Right? So these characteristics. Now, we can't teach them, but we, what we can do is probably do a lot to inhibit them from developing in children or in ourselves. And the question is, what can we do to allow those kind of capacities to come into the world through children? Well, when children go through education and then later on in life, that they at least have the opportunity to have those capacities. And if you look at education today from a wide, in a wider perspective, Wider view, so beyond Waldorf education, for example, which is, of course, a context for, what, for this conference. Um, so look, the wider view. You can pretty well say we're not actually having very much in mind being far-seeing, being flexible, and being wise. A culture of testing. Right, With testing, we're learning for tests. It's one of the strangest things when you think about it. When you think about preparing for life, right? that education should prepare for life, how many tests do you have later in life? After you've gone through you know, all your tests in, uh, in grade school, and then in middle school, and then in high school, and then in college, how many tests have you taken? And how many multiple choice tex- tests have you taken? And then you go out into life, whatever that means, and there are almost no tests. And we've spent, you know, 20, 22 years working for tests. I find this one of the strangest preparations for life that you could imagine. It seems, in a way, irrelevant, and yet we have, out of certain habits, traditions, we take certain things for granted. And what I would like us to do this morning is to try to uh, move beyond taking certain uh, ideas about education for granted, questioning them, and saying, well, the children and the Earth are our concern. What do we need to do to help them thrive? So the question of preparation. I'd like to read two different <clears throat> quotations from two wise educators. One is Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Waldorf Education. And he wrote a little essay actually before, before the first Waldorf School was founded. So this was before that. just Actually, just a few weeks before the foundation of the Waldorf School in 1919. He wrote the following. <clears throat> We shouldn't ask, what does a human being need to know and to master for society as it exists? Rather, what are a human being's predispositions and potentials for development? Then it will be possible for each each generation to infuse ever new impulses into society. What flows out of whole human beings can then live in society rather than a new generation becoming a result of what existing society wants to make out of it. So, he's saying when we're looking at education, we always think of preparation, you know, in educating for, and often we have in mind educating for the society exists that exists but if the society that exists has fundamental problems which i think all of us can recognize there are so many problems with our society today then we should actually be asking another question what are human beings predispositions and potentials for development so that each new generation can infuse ever-new impulses into society, so that the next generation can do something different than we do. And that's a big challenge, because we don't know exactly, you know, what the challenges will be that they're going to meet. And we're embedded in traditions, in a culture, in certain thought forms. And so there's a real tension in education because, of course, we think preparing. But what does that mean? So another wise educator, John Dewey, the American educator who, at his time, formulated some very um, radical ideas about education. And I'd like to just um, read something that he says about preparation. So he's thinking about education preparing. So he says, in a small little book, which I highly recommend called Experience and Education, um, that he wrote in 1938, when preparation is made the controlling end, then the potentialities of the present are sacrificed to a suppositious future. When this happens, the actual preparation for the future is missed or distorted. The ideal of using the present simply to get ready for the future contradicts itself. It omits and even shuts out the very conditions by which a person can be prepared for his future. We always live at the time we live and not at some other time. And only by extracting at each present moment the full meaning of each present experience are we prepared for doing the same in the future. This is the only preparation which, in the long run, amounts to anything. Now, that's a dense quotation, I'm aware of that. Um, but this idea where you're saying, what we're preparing for. Well, we're prepare- if we're preparing for life, and life is about engaging and responding to circumstances that you won't always know ahead of time what's going to come towards you and how you need to respond. Life is about responding and engaging creatively with the situations that come towards you. So how do you prepare for that? Well, that means education must be life in the sense of experiences. It must be engaging in experiences. That's what he means by saying, um, we living the full meaning of each present experience. When we get into an experience and really... Um, have have interacted with the world in such a way that we have become active, we have responded, we have learned from those experiences, that we have grown. His idea of education was very much um, influenced by the idea of growth, that education is growth. And real growth can only happen through experience. So he's the father of experience-based education in the United States. And I find this radical idea very freeing because it says, well, what do we need to pay attention to? We need to pay attention to what kind of experiences students are having. And are they having experiences? And of course, he wasn't naive and he says, all experiences are not created equal. Right. Some are more valuable than others and we have to choose. It's up to us to orchestrate experiences for the students, for the children. And what are our criteria? So I'll come back to that. So at the beginning, we can see we've got a big challenge, which is good. And our challenge in our times is Becoming greater, when we're thinking about Earth stewardship, caring for the Earth, I think, well, for a number of reasons, and I just want to speak about one main reason. First of all, we have today at our fingertips more knowledge and information about the Earth than we ever had. We can know so much. And we can Google it and find our way into knowledge about everything that we want to know, basically. Of course, you'll find places where we don't know something yet. But the information world and that it is at your fingertips. And you all know the situation today. Um, And I'll just speak personally now when my um, grown up children come home and we're having a A conversation at the dinner table and something comes up that we don't know well what happens well Google it it, dad okay fine and we do that and it's good I mean it's good in one way it's good and yet there is a real danger because you can know a lot about the earth but if you're always tied to your machine as my wife calls these things, she calls them machines, um, then if you're always tied to machines, then you aren't experiencing the Earth anymore. So this, this problem of our device culture, where we're continually interacting, and more and more so, with the world through a medium that allows us to access information, to be in contact with people around the world, with information gathered by many, many other people from many different times. So an amazing um, global world, and yet it's a highly mediated world. And we can be studying, you know, the weather patterns and then trip on the sidewalk and fall into the street while we're studying right? because we haven't watched our steps. And it is an amazing thing today just to, to observe this, how we are tied to these devices. And of course, as you well know, we're now dealing with generation of children where that's in their life from the very get go, from the very get go. I know my ch- grandchildren. Um, are growing up in a really different world even though my two daughters are quite conscious of you know not wanting to um, have their children interact too much with these devices their parents are using them a lot and they're they're watching their parents using them a lot and they're seeing that they're being taken uh, that they t- someone's taking a video of them they might not know it's a video but something's happening they're being watched Right. So all these things, it's a different world. And education has to really address that, I feel. And I would like to make this um, concrete through showing you a video now. And I'm not going to show you a video that I think is horrible. I'm going to show you something I think is really great. And then I'd like to talk about it with you. All right, so we'll see now whether technology cooperates. <laughs> this is where things usually become problematic. But I'm just going to hope. I will um, just tell you this is a nature video. And should you watch nature in videos with children, I highly recommend watching them without sound at least at first, at least at first, no sound. And I'm not even gonna give you the sound. You can go on YouTube and find this later, right? Um, If you're really interested in how the, uh, you know, the speech and all the music and in the background and everything. So I'm leaving that out.
0: At this point in the talk, Craig shares a short video of a fox hunting rodents in a snowy landscape. The viewer sees, over and over, the fox listening actively, then leaping into the air and diving headfirst into the snow. Sometimes the fox comes up with an animal in its mouth, and sometimes not. It is not necessary to watch the video in order to understand the rest of Craig's talk. But if you'd like to watch it, the Discovery Channel has shared it on YouTube under the title, Fox Dives Headfirst into Snow.
1: Have any of you ever observed that what you just saw? Yeah, yeah. So, this is something that most of us, you know, do not know about foxes, <clears throat> and you can learn a lot from this video. You can learn a lot, and about the movement of foxes, about some of their habits. Um, I actually. Uh, Our dog, we saw our dog doing something similar to this, Um, never with success, but it was, uh, uh, as you saw, there was not always success in catching the vole or whatever it was um, in the red fox. And it's quite remarkable. And now what I'd like us to do is just to, um, you know, way, what's the difference between that kind of an experience of a video and what the video is as a kind of reality and our experience of the world that is not given to us through screens, all right? So that we kind of move and see what, what's going on here. Now. One of the reasons that most of us have not observed this behavior is perhaps that we don't live up in Montana or near Yellowstone Park or wherever this was um, taken. And most of us are not wildlife photographers or videographers who are willing to sit out in the cold, in the snow, for countless hours in order to perhaps see this happening very rarely. Right? So this is not an event that just happens where you're walking by, and, oh, yes, this happens, and you know, it doesn't, it's not like that. And so it takes a special kind of human being to make this kind of um, nature phenomenon visible to us and this human being has a camera that has a big telephoto lens on it so that he or she can give us the impression that we're close to the fox because we're they he or she was not anywhere near the fox when these uh when taking these pictures so it's drawn close so that we can see in detail that we would, what we would never experience in that way if we were there as fully embodied human beings observing, freezing and observing. Um, and then we have the fact that this uh, person probably took many, 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 many minutes of um, different clips that then came into two two minutes and whatever it is, two minutes and 48 seconds. So either that person or someone else now used artistry to clip that together to make it into a short experience for us. Because that was not one sequence, right? Those were many pulled together. We don't even know And I must admit, I haven't observed it so carefully to be sure. Am I looking at the same fox the whole time? Is it the same fox? I don't know. I kind of think so, but I'm not sure. And so, in a way, what we have with this video is a work of art. It's something that has been created through human beings interacting with the world in a particular way and bringing that together and presenting it for someone else to experience. It's not an experience of nature. Nature videos, nature movies are not experiences of nature. And we just have to be clear about that, even though I can highly appreciate this. It's not about saying they're bad. I would say, however, they are bad if you have no nature experiences. Now everyone has some nature experiences, but it is something, and this is more subtle, to observe in yourself when you're observing that snowy landscape. Um, I happen to have grown up in the West, so I have a feeling for those landscapes. And of course, you just had a wonderful snowfall here a few days ago where you had a feeling for a snowy landscape and the cold and what it means to be out in that. So we are actually, with our, our more, I'll call them, bodily senses, we're participating in that video. If we had grown up in Manaus on the Amazon River, that would be a really weird video. Because you'd have no, what's, what, you know, I might have, oh yeah, I've heard about this stuff, snow, but the cold, you know, what's coming out of the, the nose when it's breathing out? What is that? Steam? I thought steam came out of kettles. Right? These, so do you understand? We presuppose our own embodied experiences when we're experiencing nature videos. Um, I wasn't watching you because I didn't want to be impolite. But I was, <laughs> prepared, I was paying attention to myself a little bit. You know, when it's going, you're, you're making the movements of the fox a little bit too. We have legs and arms, and we, we this kind of jump. And then this, right, this orienting itself. So we are participating because we have experience as embodying beings, human beings. And the more we have, the more we can learn from this. I know some people who are good wildlife trackers, and you go out with them, and you look at the tracks of animals and they see much more than i see right they see much more than i see and um, one of them told me you know, he does use videos every once in a while to um, see how the legs are actually moving when they're moving so that he can get into that more clearly and in this video we could do that because it was slowed down Right? It was not in normal tempo, another art, uh, artifact, you could say, or artistry to make a movement more um, visible to slow it down so we can participate in it. So there is a lot to say for such videos. But I would say only if you have had experiences embodied experiences in the natural world yourself that you can relate them to. If this is the way you think you're helping children meet nature, you're living in a big illusion. Right? So you see that it's, again, not saying all bad, all good, You know, everything's fine. It's about making certain kinds of distinctions and saying, if children are more and more experiencing a world that is mediated by the artistry of other people, and call, when we're calling that nature, then um, we need to have the actual nature in experiences as a counterbalance. And as I said, this is a good video. Now imagine all the cartoon-like presentations of the world. and where everything, where I have a hard time th- calling some of this artistry, right, um, at all. But where the children then are in a completely uh, human fantasy world where you ask, what was the source of this fantasy? And why am I participating in it? So, and so I'm not going there, I'm, I'm staying with the ones where I feel like yeah, this is something where someone genuinely wants to share what um, something good, something uh, beautiful about nature that we can appreciate, but our appreciation can, um, we can have appreciation to the extent that we ourselves have had our own experiences. That's really fundamental. So the question of having Experiences and I'd like to read you just a a few two sentences actually from a Philosopher of technology who I've grown to really appreciate his name is Albert Borgman he taught for many years at the University of um, Montana and He Says the following about devices. What is made available by a device is enjoyed without the encumbrance or the engagement with a context. The constraints of space and time are more and more dissolved. So, in our experience of the world, We live in space and time. And the um, photographer had to go out in the winter to do this. We can lie in bed in the summer, or better, lie at the side of a swimming pool and watch the fox in the winter. So the constraints of space and time are more and more dissolved. And what's made available by the device is enjoyed without the encumbrance or the engagement with a context. So the actual context is not there. That's hidden. The the context of the fox, of the video, of the camera, and of how all this is made how how this gets onto the screen it's all hidden we don't participate in it we don't know it and so he very clearly characterizes the qualities of what he calls the divide device culture and so the tension today is not to say, got to get rid of all devices because that's probably an illusion anyway. Um, they have there's so much that's valuable that we can all see, and yet the stronger it becomes, the more you can sense the need for a counterbalance to that, of having experiences of things. Now you could say that do not dissolve the constraints of space and time, and that are only enjoyed with the encumbrance and the engagement with a context. And Borgman writes about this in a very nice way. Um, And he speaks of um, what he calls the real and what he calls The hyper real, which he means the more device culture. Um, I would have actually called it the hypo real, the less than real, but I know why he calls it hyper real. So I'm not going to worry about the words. So here is how he characterizes what he calls the real. What is eminently real has a commanding presence and a telling and strong continuity with its world. Whatever is devoid of contextual bonds, and hence freely, that is instantaneously and ubiquitously available, is therefore subject to our whims and control, and cannot command our respect in its own right. Conversely, Whatever engages our intention due to its own dignity does so in important part as an embodiment and disclosure of the world it has emerged from. Whatever engages our intention attention due to its own dignity as an embodiment and disclosure of the world it has emerged from. That's what he means by context things that are embedded so that, that they command or ask for our attention because they are revealing something much larger. And in a way, that's what I would call wisdom. And that's the wisdom that's in the world, but can we participate in it? And I would say we need to have our children have the opportunity to participate in what he calls commanding presences if we're going to give them the possibility to be rooted in the world. To be rooted in the world. And so the question is, you know, how do we do this? what are some of these commanding presences, and there are no recipes. But the idea of the the commanding presences was like a key for me, where I thought, if I were to go back now into the classroom and work with high school students, as I did for many years, I would, of course, focus on, you know, what it is I'm supposed to be covering, whatever that is, you know, and wherever that uh, directive comes from. But I would ask myself, Craig, what are the commanding presences that you are going to try to let your students participate in tomorrow? That may be more important than, well, they need to learn about cell division tomorrow if cell division is taught in such a way that it's not a commanding presence for them that it doesn't seem Im- connected with the world that it do- that they don't see you know, wh- wh- why, you know why should i be learning this and of course if you're working with adolescents you can hear a lot of that and you can't always take it seriously um but it's more this You can really feel the difference when the students feel like they're meeting something that's bigger than they are and that it's worth learning. Right. There's a wholly different mood in the classroom or outside wherever one is working. So. This orchestrating situations in which children and young people can meet commanding presences and work with them. And I think this is, you know, the title for the title of my talk this cultivating the roots of earth stewardship. It's related to this because commanding presences are always in contexts. They express a context. They're, you always have to deal with something that is dynamic. Big, changing, and that you have to get in relation to. And that's a highly ecological way of um, educating, of, of letting the world educate me through my interactions. So, let me go into a few examples with young children. I mean, one um, feature which you know I'm very happy to see this happening all over the place and within Waldorf movement, but elsewhere as well, the forest kindergartens. And of course, you'll hear about that if you participate in the one workshop later on. Um, what that means for these young children to be outside and not learning this plant, that plant, not kind of an environmental education curriculum for five-year-olds, but being able to interact with wood and water and leaves and trees and bark and poop and this and that, right? That they're engaging in a world that is everywhere a commanding presence. Nature is the epitome of everywhere a commanding presence. So nature, education. And for the younger children, it's about being in that world, having a certain um, context provided through adults so that it doesn't become too dangerous. But it needs to have a little danger in it, right? that you really can fall flat on your face into a puddle. that that's you know that's the possibility of life puddles are commanding presences and uh, and those are experiences a child doesn't forget either right which is very interesting they've met something in the world that was right and so full-bodied sensory experiences and we have to counteract our tendency today to live constantly in a fear-based world, right? a fear-based world where everything is dangerous. We have to be, protect children from everything. And the protection gesture is great. Right? It's very important. And yet, on the other hand, the letting go and still having your mind around the children is really important. So, orchestrating these situations. That's the one side. The other side is that children are around people, adults, who are engaging with the world in meaningful ways, who are attending to things, who might pick up some trash rather than ignoring it and walking by, who are caring for a piece of land or i'll just give you a little personal story Um, we've always uh since we've had children you know lived in situations where we could compost everything organic that was in the family right from the food scraps and all of that and um, when my oldest daughter moved then to uh, new york city and for a while could not compost she said i really feel guilty you know i said there, and maybe yeah, i don't know if she felt guilty if she said guilty i'm sorry i might be miss i know she said this doesn't feel right this just does not feel right and then she found ways aha there was a farmer's market where they would take her compost every week so she put it in the freezer took it to them and now it gets collected where she lives. So she was around. And you can imagine, as a 10-year-old, she sometimes thought, oh, this is really gross, going out and smelly compost and putting it. You know, It wasn't necessarily an enjoyable experience, but we just did it. It was just part of our life, whether she enjoyed it or not. And so this being around adults who are caring who are perceiving, who are also in their senses, and they're in that presence. Because children are imitative beings, right, are imitative beings. They take that in. They take that in. Now, another, I'm just picking out a few, you know, aspects. And there are many more, but we don't have a lot of time. Um, One of the most wonderful things I think today, and this is happening more and more as well, and there's also a workshop about this today, is gardening, working with the earth. Because the earth is a commanding presence. Soil, seeds, plants germinating, tending for them, having to deal with drought and too much rain. What do we do now? right responding to changing conditions again adults who are helping guiding the meaningful work but they're engaged in it and not that they're always going to like it that's not always the point but they're doing it and they're seeing effects of their actions those speak the world speaks back in um, through what we do how does the world respond so this caring for the earth and I just want to um, mention a book that just came out this year from a teacher um, at the um, Summerfield Waldorf School in California calling, called Growing Sustainable Children, um, a Garden Teacher's Guide. And Ronnie Sands, um, who I know, you know, she developed a whole curriculum from the kindergarten to the high school interacting with nature and through gardening, but also in the high school, quite different with questions of, you know, what what is permaculture, many other issues. But this goes through the whole school. And I think this is so important. And of course, you can imagine, especially in urban and suburban settings where the commanding presences of nature are a little bit uh, pushed back to a degree, that this comes into a school, that the children have this opportunity to get outside the classroom and be in, be with the earth, and that changing throughout the development of the children in age-appropriate ways and depending on the place. So I helped um, the Detroit Waldorf School with a couple other people develop an environmental science curriculum for their middle school. And that was very place-based. It was, you know, what's the situation now in Detroit? Very challenging. What could we do? What could happen? So we worked with the faculty and tried to come up with some ideas that seemed fruitful for this place to do in this way. It's not going to be the same everywhere. There are no recipes. It's about communities of people saying, Let's try this and see how it works. But it means seeing there's something other, something else important. We need to do more of the engaging with the commanding presences and see how the curriculum, how the school day can adjust to that if we really want to help children thrive or to i say it again to be rooted in in the world to have roots in the world because to have roots in the world means they're given something that they can later build on when they're adults and if they don't have that they don't have that to build on there's something missing so very briefly um, Just a couple things related to being in a more urban, suburban environment, because commanding presence are not only, you know, pristine nature by any means. And um, someone who I highly revere, Aldo Leopold, who was a great ecologist and environmental thinker in the 20th century, he wrote the following. In 1939. All I am saying is that there is drama in every bush, if you can see it. That's, you need guidance sometimes to see that. When enough men, I'll make him into the 21st century, when enough people know this, we need fear, no indifference, to the welfare of bushes or birds or soil or trees. We shall then have no need of the word conservation, for, sh- for we shall have the thing itself. Drama in every bush, if we can see it. That means we as adults need to be very attentive. Oh, do you see that? Did you notice? Oh, look. Oh, wow. Do you understand? Um, the weeds in a city lot convey the same lesson as the redwoods it's kind of hard to swallow but (laughs) we're going to go into vacation on the city lot and watch the weeds kid (laughs) so but he was he saw and it's very interesting this was written 1938 yeah Um, he was beginning to see what he called the stampede for recreation with cars and roads. You know? And what has become, then, of much recreation, where you drive, you look out your window, you take your picture, and you move on. He said, you know, it better stay at home and look at weeds. Right? So he was, he was feeling something's coming that's not good. And he himself had such rich nature experiences that he knew what he was talking about. And it is. You can learn an awful lot by a weed in a city lot. You can learn a lot. Um, so it's about paying noticing, noticing, paying attention, engaging with, and then seeing it how it's a reflection of something larger than itself, commanding presence, commanding presence. So. Just very briefly, ooh, yes, because I need to close shortly. Um, in other commanding presences that are really important, but I don't want... I, I, I want to put the focus on the nature ones, because this our topic is caring for the Earth. But if you do arts and crafts every day of your school life, you're engaging with commanding presences your own body, if you're moving, with the world of color, with the world of of substances that resist you doing something with them, like stone or wood, where you can notice very quickly if you mess up, your whole body as an organ in singing, using an instrument. An instrument is a commanding presence that you have to be learned to work with. all of that work is also engaging with um, commanding presences. And one aspect, which I want to mention just because it's very strong in Waldorf education and it's very good, is the culture of stories. Because stories are commanding presences. Right? They have a dynamic to them. They're whole. There's drama. And they come out of a richness of wisdom um, that children just love to enter into with their imagination and that so much of education again in the broader culture has lost the element of story is a real tragedy right? and so that's and now then again tr- story transforming through the ages a story for a young child is different for a story from a for a 14 year old but I want to mention that you know, story, arts and crafts, um, all of that can, they can help cultivate this engaging with commanding presences. But we need the, one, the, the nature commanding presences very strongly embodied, really being embodied in a world that has wisdom in it. And we're learning from that. Going to leave something out now. Um, David Orr, uh, the environmental uh, science educator who was at Oberlin College for a long time and wrote a lot very thoughtfully about education. In a book that he wrote in the early 90s on ecological literacy, um, he had an essay, it was called What is Education for? And he said, he's talking about now higher education, so um, college and university education, and he's very, you know, speaking to his colleagues and saying, listen, we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough that the students are engaging with the earth that matters, right? The earth that matters and the future, for the future. And education needs to really shift. It's a worthwhile essay still today to read. But what I found interesting in one thing, particularly interesting for this morning, was where he put it in a certain way, can we facilitate, I know, I care, I act. I know, I care, I act. And this knowing Um, has to do a lot with the getting into the commanding presences. That's not his language, but that's the way um, I want to put it now, right? You're getting, you're not just knowing about, it's not knowing why is there climate change just intellectually, but having experiences of weather and water and maybe even experiences of carbon dioxide. So it's not just two letters and a number, CO2, right? That it has something about it that you've experienced. So this getting to know, and then I care. I care. Because I've met something real in the world that of its own accord um, lets me see it's big, I care about it. And I was talking to my son, who's now doing a master's degree in. Um, ecology and he said you know dad a lot of people care but they don't do anything yeah you're right so this I care and then I act and there's no easy answer to that it's not that you can teach programmatic action but if you look at Again, this quality of educating through commanding presence, as you can say, are the children learning to act in education? Is it it going beyond consideration to acting and doing, and doing within contexts that matter? And of course, it matters whether the dishes get washed at home. It matters whether the compost gets taken out right you see what i mean these little things they matter acting so that we have in consciousness that we're going we're we're going through a, it's not really a sequence but we're we're moving from um is engaging with to beginning to know i see i care and now i do something and so I think as an educator to pay attention to that, what kind of tasks, you know, when the, the, in this eighth grade curriculum for the um, um, Detroit Waldorf School, one of the things they really wanted, and they saw the need for this, that the eighth graders were involved in community, um, community garden projects in their communities. They were helping there. They were part of a process that was in their community. It wasn't just made up of some little task that they're doing in the back of their school. It was part of the world that has needs for food right? and has a kind of um, urban wasteland that they're trying to recover, something meaningful. And of course, that metamorphoses again as the children grow older. That can change. And I can say this um, out of my own education. I went through normal public schooling. Um, and high school almost did me in, in terms of boredom and other things. Um, and a certain uh, save, save, well, a real saving grace was in the 12th grade. I was able to become part of a program that was outside the school, but for which I got credits for doing. Um, through the university, where a group of us was allowed to take initiative. Wow. We were supported in taking initiative. Eight, you know, um, high school students who really didn't know anything, we were supposed we wanted to take initiative. So what did we do? Two different things. We designed an environmental fair where we then closed down some of the streets in downtown Boulder, Colorado for a whole Saturday and had people come and exhibit and do things. We had to work with the city officials. We had to do all these things. It was amazing, and it was really challenging and scary. Um, But it was great. And we also, another group, um, worked on interviewing people about their interests in the environment what they why they think of the environment is important people uh, we interviewed people then who had spiritual backgrounds so a rabbi a priest um, other people so we interviewed them to you know why do you care about the environment and how does your practice how does your religion how does your spirituality influence that so we interviewed people another really scary thing but this was real in a way that we had to engage with things that were not in school, and I must admit, in that year I learned more for the rest of my life than I did in an, in the three years before that. In any case, in high school. So it's just an example of this I act because we don't. I, one of the problems this comes back to the beginning, and then I um, I will conclude is that we want to educate in a way that something new can come into culture. That we can't foresee what's going to happen. Right? There, just look back the last few years. You know, if you tweet yourself five years ago, would any of us imagine the world looks the way it does today, concretely, kind of situations? No, we can't really know. And yet we know the needs are big. So, this on the one hand saying, I don't really know. But what I can do is I can help young people form roots that they can draw from out of the wisdom of the world and that they've engaged with that from young age on. Engaged from young age on. And as their capacities develop, they get to meet new challenges in life and that Life education should be life Um, Rudolf Steiner in a lecture in 1922 about Waldorf education He was speaking to young people here. This is also interesting, right said Waldorf education should not be a system of principles but rather an impulse to awaken it should be life not accumulated knowledge not skill, but art, life-filled action, awakening action. Right? And of course, it's not Waldorf education alone. That should be all education, right? Life-filled action, awakening action. How? Through allowing children to participate in the wisdom that's embodied in our planet And we're included in that, right? the wisdom that we have, so that they get roots that they can draw on when they're facing challenges in 20 years, of which I have no idea, but I have great hope that if we do this, something good could happen. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this Nature Institute podcast. If you'd like to hear more podcasts in the future, please subscribe. You can also find our many books, articles, and videos, as well as ongoing courses that we offer at our website, natureinstitute.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with friends and also rating it on iTunes so that others can better find it. Thanks so much.